1934. The country has been living through hard times for five years now. And even at a buck fifty, tickets for pro hockey games are too much for most fans. The National Hockey League is fighting for its life. Some teams are sold, others fold. Of the ten teams that made up the NHL in the late 20s, only six will survive the Depression. The Ottawa Senators, seven-time winners of the Stanley Cup, will not. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, friends, how are you? It's uh, it's another uh, episode into the uh, realm of ice hockey, and uh, we've uh, had a couple of interesting uh, episodes uh, in uh, weeks and months past uh, around uh, a number of more modern NHL franchises, and certainly the WHA has gotten a fair uh, treatment here on this little show and many more of those to come uh, in the weeks and months to follow. But we're going to go back uh, into the uh, earliest, uh, let's call it primordial ooze, of the uh, National Hockey League, which uh, uh, is also uh, an amazing and interesting uh, time and era. And uh, yes, there were teams uh, that uh, were not just the original six. I think a lot of people kind of uh, look back and uh, and frankly don't recognize they, they they think that the history of the NHL was just the original six until 1967 and the great expansion. But alas, no, the answer is uh, not uh, that. Uh, there were uh, a bunch of teams in uh, a very fledgling uh, late 19-teens and early 1920s uh, that uh, sort of begat or begot or or morphed into, that's the better term, I guess, into what uh, is now known as the National Hockey League. And there are teams like the Montreal Wanderers and the, uh, the Toronto Arenas, uh, the New York Americans, a very interesting franchise, the Montreal Maroons. A uh, very competitive team to the Montreal Canadiens. Heck, even the Philadelphia Quakers for a season. All bunches of teams uh, that uh, were part of the original uh, hard scrabble uh, uh, and undetermined uh, parts of uh, what uh, then gelled into the original six, or what was called the original six, uh, in the NHL. I think people think the original six means literally the original, and it is not the case. And that is the co- topic of our conversation uh, this week with our uh, guest, Andrew Ross, he the author of Joining the Clubs, The Business of the National Hockey League to 1945. And we're going to be talking about some of those early times, early years, the formative years of what is now the uh, National Hockey League uh, and how sort of the uh, business of professional hockey kind of uh, got going, got started, got congealed into uh, the uh, modern era, shall we say. And as you can hear in our conversation with uh, with Andrew, this is, uh, frankly, the beginning of uh, perhaps a two, maybe even three-part story of how the history and the economic history of, of professional hockey, especially the NHL in this country and in Canada, of course, sort of became uh, the, uh, the standard that uh, we know it today. A very interesting conversation and arguably uh, the beginning of uh, perhaps a few others to come with Andrew Ross, he the author of Joining the Clubs, uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, I want to uh, remind you that we've got uh, two, uh, we've got a bunch of tremendous sponsors, but two in particular I want to call out now. Uh, one is OldSchoolShirts.com out of Cincinnati. 
Uh, and the promo code GOODSEATS to get 10% off of all of your purchases. At OldSchoolShirts.com, you're going to find NHL. You're going to find WHA. You're going to find a bunch of hockey stuff, uh, shirts, and even some of the arenas that uh, some of those uh, teams played in. Uh, lovingly uh, remembered uh, and high-quality T-shirt form. OldSchoolShirts.com. Make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS and get 10% off all of your purchases. We thank P.F. Wilson and his friends at OldSchoolShirts.com for sponsoring our little show, and hopefully you'll find a few hockey items that you're going to love and enjoy. And I do think you'll also find a few hockey items that you're going to love and enjoy from said leagues, the NHL, the WHA, etc., even others, some minor leagues and all that kind of stuff, at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, use the promo code Good Seats there at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com and get, wait for it, 15% off of all your purchases, courtesy of Dean Mitchell and friends there. Uh, some great hockey stuff there. Hell, there's a really cool uh, beanie hat uh, from Mitchell and Ness of the old Kansas City Scouts that's on there for uh, a really uh, amazing price. Uh, I don't know. It was part of somebody's collection. They never used it. Uh, it's got the tags and everything on it still. Uh, and uh, to me, that's uh, got sort of the glint in my eye. Uh, and that's uh, among the uh, dozens of items you're going to find in all kinds of sports and teams and leagues that don't exist anymore or were previously incarnated. Uh, and hockey is absolutely a very robust uh, component of such. And that's at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And remember, again, use that promo code GOODSEATS at checkout and get 15% off your purchases there at Goods uh, from your friends here at Good Seats Still Available. Thank you very much. Our friend uh, Dean Mitchell, uh, the proprietor of such, we thank him and SportsHistoryCollectibles.com for uh, their sponsorship of our show as well. All right, so we've moved that uh, out of the way. Let's brush it to the side, shall we? And uh, we uh, encourage you to keep uh, an ear for this very interesting conversation. I learned a ton uh, about the uh, economic history of the early days of the uh, National Hockey League. Give a listen. I think you're going to like it. Where I come from, it is, well, being Canadian, we kind of have hockey in our blood to a certain extent. I, of course, played as a kid. But as I went to school doing history, I became very interested in business history and, and how businesses in particular uh, kind of used culture, uh, used the, the appearance of their product in their business model. And I, what I discovered is sports is very interesting in this respect in, in, in the sense that people don't even see sports really as a business in many ways. And so I thought to myself, well, what are these guys who are running these leagues, in particular hockey, the NHL? What do they think they're doing? Do they think they're sportsmen? Do they think they're businessmen? Are they taking advantage of this perception or are they just out to make money or they really want to stay on the cups? So I really wanted to look at the inside uh, of the kind of the inside the mind of the hockey businessman of the early part of the century to see what they were, what they thought they were up to. And what uh, and sort of how did this particular sort of laser focus sort of come into play? Right. Because. The NHL, for example, right, very um, has a bunch of different sort of say eras or or parts of its sort of its history. You you've kind of focused in on sort of the earliest sort of uh, modeling, I guess, of the NHL and its uh, uh, its early days and maybe its um, not so direct path to the economics that exists today in the in the, in the league. Yeah, what I was looking at and what it fascinated fascinated me about the early part of the league was that uh, originally. Hockey in Canada starts uh, one of the later sports after other big sports like lacrosse, um, to some extent about the same time as football. And it really looked, in hockey's case, to lacrosse as its model for how to run its league. But as it becomes more commercial, 
it looks south and it sees the National League and the American League and how they organize things. And there's this moment in 1909 where they basically switch over the the rules for running the league from a lacrosse model to an, an American baseball model. And baseball is really the model they use from then on about how to organize your players. They essentially have their own version of the reserve clause. Uh, they have, you know, restrictions about who can get into the league, uh, you know, and they keep it as, as this, essentially this cartel, which is the model that the baseball had been using. And then at football and in the twenties, NFL, and then later basketball also adopts. So you get these, these big four leagues that essentially use the, all the same model. Yeah, so let's talk about that model because we, we've, we've definitely uh, touched on uh, some of the, uh, I don't know, shall we say, either uh, well thought out or, or at least uh, uh, beginning ideas of what the, I, what the business of these leagues and these teams might be, right? So one of the things that we, we go back to is, you know, we certainly talk about, you know, the teams and the play and, and uh, you know, uh, the excitement and the, the interest and the fan uh, uh, fervor for, for the sport and, and, and professionalized. But it, it, even in the earliest days, and we go back into the late, late uh, 1800s with baseballs in the United States, we, we still hear this sort of term of he or generally he, occasionally, occasionally a she, was a businessman, yeah. right? It's always sort of the, yeah. they're always trying to figure out dollars in this sort of professionalism. And, and you know, in this era when the NHL was sort of, uh, you know, rattling around as an idea, right? Um, were there competing models or thoughts on this? Or was it just, let's get a, an assemblage of players in a league and then we'll figure out the business model as we go along? Yeah, so the, the big the big competing models early on, this is true for baseball and hockey, is the, the, the competition between the amateur model and the professional model. And the, basically the difference in the, although there's a moral dimension where people say, you know, it's you're better off to be playing a sport for, for moral uh, elevation rather than profit, it really comes down to these, these amateur teams start making a lot of money, and it's really a question of whether or not they can start paying their players or not. And so the professional baseball, the difference is whether the, the players really get paid. Once the uh, once the professionals become more comfortable with being professional and 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 saying you know we're legitimate, and this is the hockey takes place in the, early, the first decade of the 20th century, the big um, big choice there is between having a cartel league where you have separately owned teams, or a league that is owned all by the same people. And there's an example of this league, the Pacific Coast Hockey Association which is actually owned by, uh, by a pair of brothers uh, who uh, go out to the West Coast, and they realize they're not going to get entrepreneurs to invest in these teams unless they own all the teams first. This is something that had come out of baseball, where there's some suspicion about this, about owners owning multiple teams. And the reason is quite a simple one, is that you, if, you, if the owner of the teams, uh, the owner, two teams of the same owner, you weren't sure that the competition on the field was going to be fair, that maybe the owner would do something to, to uh, undermine the integrity of the game. So what happens is baseball works this out in the late 19th century and basically says we're going to have separately owned teams. There'll be no cross ownership. Hockey basically makes the same choice. Early on, it decides, like I said, that maybe to get into a certain space, it needs to have a little bit of co-ownership, but essentially it, it, it weeds that out by the 1950s. So there's no, there's no, um, there's no overlap. You'll notice uh, Major League Soccer actually started with that model as well, where they basically had some of the teams being owned by the league, right, or owned by by one or single owners. 
So, but this is not the model that North America has taken. It's, it's a very strong association between the city and one owner, one city, competing off the field and on the field, if you will. Yeah. So that's that, that is a that is a central theme in a lot of um, a lot of conversations that we've had, and a lot of sort of uh, looks back, right? Um, a, a case in point that I just can think of at the top of my head. Uh, is in our discussions of the Arena Football League, right, with uh, the founder of it, Jim mm-hmm. Foster. Um, you know, the real tension between, I mean, he he was very concerned about, uh, I guess, the franchise model and the individual ownership thing in the earliest days of what is it, what wasn't even a sport, right, per se, right? It was indoor football and right. know, the rules were different. It was a relatively new and, and novel kind of thing. Uh, the last thing he wanted to do was have uh, owners from various uh, ports of call, shall we say, sources of of, uh, of wealth and whatnot, you know, diverging on thought process when, in his mind, it was, we got to get this sport kind of nurtured first uh, before we can even get to that point. And he tells a story uh, later on, in the years later on, that he kind of lost the battle uh, and then to the owners that essentially pushed him in that direction and pushed him out. Uh, to go that franchise mm. model, and we can make the argument that AFL has never really recovered since. But that idea of centralized ownership, you know, to get things going at the very least, uh, you know, versus a purely franchised, you know, uh, kind of model with some level of regulation and or rules and maybe economics. Um, you know, it's a very interesting tension that I don't think is really, you know, I, when we talk about new and fledgling leagues, it's very, you mentioned MLS. I mean, Major League Soccer is still a century. They're owner operators, right? They do have franchises, yeah. but they're not. Yeah. They're really, it's a collective still. And, you know, you get into the soccer right. co- cognoscente and they'll, they'll say, you know, maybe it's time to take those training wheels off and let sort of the free market kind of decide. But, you know, there are reasons yeah. why not. Yeah. And that's what's really fascinating about the, what we've now seen in North America is this Major League Sports model is that balance between that individual owner and keeping the league together. And that's the reason I call my book Joining the Clubs, because it's about joining, in some sense, a club, a sportsman's club, but it's also about keeping, joining the clubs together so they stay together, right? And the history of the NHL before 1917 is every five to 10 years, they would break up. Someone would go off and say, we're stronger than you, we're gonna join up another formation. And in the early years of the league, and, and up into the WHA, right? We have that example of that league splitting off. The tension is always keeping them together. So, and what's the big picture of this, if you back up a step to look at the economy in general, is that business in general in the 20th century in North America was concentrating. You think of a company like General Motors, where it brought together, you know, Chevrolet and, you know, Cadillac and all these different brands, these older companies under one roof. They're getting bigger and they're concentrating. Hockey sports are actually doing the opposite. They're actually staying local in a national league, right? It's actually a very interesting um, concept. Uh, A few years ago, actually, um, Mitt Romney's company, Bain Capital, actually put a proposal to the NHL to buy the entire league uh, because they see the logic here, which is that it's actually much more efficient if you ran marketing entirely out of the NHL central office. And you controlled, of course, all the salaries through the central office. There'd be no competition between teams at all, right? And so they actually proposed this, that they, they essentially buy the entire league. And I think they were offering a little bit less than Gary Bettman and the owners wanted, about $2.5 billion. But uh, so, the, so the, from the outside, people do see that the logic could be that, that everyone, the league could be owned by essentially one owner or shareholders. 
So, so maybe it's helpful to, to kind of go back to sort of the, uh, let's call it the primordial ooze, I guess, of the NHL, right? So, um, you know, so it, it, by the mid-20s, essentially, the NHL had emerged, I guess, out of uh, whatever sort of competition. I mean, you mentioned a couple of, of leagues, the PCHA and the Western Can- uh, Canada Hockey League and, you know, so others sort of came yeah. and went. Maybe you can give our audience a bit of a sense of sort of how I mean, I, if you look at the sort of the records, I mean, I guess the, the uh, you know, history books will say the NHL um, kind of got started in 1917. I, you know, OK, uh, maybe there's some some debate to that, but maybe you can give us uh, a sense of sort of how the NHL kind of by the mid 20s really became literally, I guess, the only sort of major league hockey uh, 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 proposition in North America. And maybe we can go from there. Sure. Yeah, sure. So, what you uh, the the early um, the early story of hockey is essentially it starts off in sports clubs, essentially in Montreal, right? And it starts off with these amateurs, these middle class uh, who, people who have day jobs and they're playing at night. And then, of course, they start realizing, as with other sports, that people will pay to see this. Uh, they will also gamble on the games, and it becomes a little bit more serious in terms of money. And there's money to be made. So there's this this competition, as I mentioned earlier, between these amateurs who say, you know, we're going to still play for moral elevation. Uh, we don't play for money. And there's other people, these entrepreneurs who don't tend to be of the same class. You know, they're the, the Irish Canadian, the French Canadian entrepreneurs of Montreal. They say, no, no, there's, there's, there's a few bucks to be made here. And so they essentially make this break in the first decade of the 20th century and say, we're going to be fully professional. And it turns out that's a good model in terms of performance on the ice because they start taking over the Stanley Cup competition. So the Stanley Cup competition essentially becomes dominated by professional teams. Um, so the, the challenge that, that the uh, National Hockey League and its predecessor, the National Hockey Association, there's lots of alphabet soup of leagues at this point, is that they really want the teams in the biggest cities. So they started Montreal, Quebec City, in Ottawa, and then they moved down to Toronto. And Toronto is a bastion of amateurism. Everyone loves amateur hockey there. Uh, and also the owners love amateur hockey because, as I said before, they don't have to pay the players. And players' costs are becoming a big part of the uh, the economics of the game. So uh, the NHL has a really hard time actually getting into Toronto. Now, there's, of course, the context of the First World War here is putting strains on players. And it's really after the war that people really see the opportunity as sport basically starts exploding, particularly in the United States. Now, this is the era of of, you know, Red Grange and Bill Tilden and all the big stars of Babe Ruth in the 20s. And people uh, have more money now in the 20s. This is the roaring 20s, and they're willing to spend it on, on leisure activities. And hockey sees that as well. And they see that the future of the league really has to be the United States uh, unless they're willing to have a rival league. So they go to Boston, they go to New York, they go to Pittsburgh, they go to Chicago, they go to Detroit in that decade. Uh, and really start establishing themselves as the top elite league. Of course, there's all these other cities that want hockey teams too. So Frank Calder, who's the president, basically comes up with a scheme, again, modeled on baseball, where he will encourage these other smaller cities to affiliate in leagues that are minor leagues, right? Minor to the NHL. And the NHL will take their best players and give them money in return. So he's really trying to control um, control and restructure the hockey industry in that tiered baseball model uh and it's i think by 1932 is the latest that another league actually has the um has the boldness to challenge for the stanley cup and say you know we're good enough to be in the stanley cup 
and Calder uh, figures out a way to basically make make sure that doesn't happen. By the time the depression kicks in, the NHL teams are the only ones that can really survive. Uh, and uh, and that's essentially sets the model. You know, you've got seven teams in the depression. They drop one during the Second World War. And then from then you've got that, what people see as the golden age of the, the six teams in the NHL up until the expansion of 67. So that's interesting. A couple of things to unpack there. I guess the the first one that sort of comes to mind. Yeah, there's lots. <laughs> yeah, so the, the the you're mentioning sort of the uh, the parallels or the uh, the emulation, I guess, of of, uh, of baseball in that time. Um, one of the things that we've uh, we've scratched on uh, a couple of times in some conversations around, uh, frankly, some of the earliest days of of baseball, late 1800s, early 1900s, is this sort of, uh, I guess you could call it formative tension uh, between. Uh, professionalism and amateurism, right? So in the late 1800s, right, baseball, the idea of professionally pursuing or or, or uh, putting together uh, a pro sort of circuit for baseball was itself even a, uh, you know, a controversial at the time uh, conversation because there was sort of the love of the sport. There was, it was thriving at the amateur level, uh, the, 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 the potential, interloping from things like gambling and, and other sort of untoward and or feared uh, activities that would sort of come when you put money into the game. And yet, uh, a bunch of folks recognizing that without some, I don't know, level of, let's call it professionalism, but uh, uh, clarity around schedules and some centralized thinking yeah. about rules and those kinds of things. Yeah. So I, yeah, maybe organization. About, yeah. yeah, so it sounds like that, that hockey was sort of going through some of that as well. Although it seems that maybe professionalism came a little bit more quickly or is a little bit more clear. I don't know. Yeah, it, well, it, it is. You can kind of see if you look at each individual sport in that area, you kind of see this progression from amateur to professional and this controversy that comes with it. So essentially the hockey amateur conflict really comes to a head, I think, well, probably 10 or 20 years after the baseball one. Baseball more or less got it resolved by the early part of the century. We've got the formation of, you know, the, the two major leagues together. Uh, look, uh, hockey also comes after lacrosse. It's interesting that the hockey rules have rules about the initial hockey league rules say basically you can't, um, you can't pay players, but there was no suggestion that anyone actually was being paid at that time. They basically borrowed the rule from lacrosse, where lacrosse had developed earlier and they had started paying players. But this is a really important uh um, important point here is about the nature of the of the commercial product itself. Is that it's a cultural product in the sense that people play sports for to reinforce their community identity, to f- reinforce their own identity. Right? It has this this product which we see now actually has a, a cultural and a social meaning that is very strong. And that's why amateurism was so strong before, is because people did not play it for money. They played it to show off, to show their strength, to show their manhood their manliness, uh, you know, there was different reasons. There were social reasons for playing to show off their class as well. Right. And one of the things about class was that if, if you, if sport became a symbol of, of leisure activity, then you had to prove that it wasn't your job because you had to prove that you had the time and the money to play it after work, not as work. Right. So this, this is all wrapped up in that, in that debate. Yeah, it almost feels like baseball sort of created a bit of a blueprint. Um, but let me so let me ask you this question, right? So with uh, unlike baseball, right? Uh, and uh, the, you know we had you know over the uh, the first couple of decades of baseball's professional uh, landscape, you had uh, a number of different leagues uh, settling with the, into what ostensibly became two uh, 
uh, major leagues, uh, occasionally joined by a third. Um, I'm curious mm-hmm. as to, I guess this is sort of maybe the other thing to sort of unpack from your previous comment is how does the NHL, how did the NHL sort of, uh, I guess, circle the wagons to centralize this kind of control? And interestingly, maybe why another league or two uh, kind of didn't uh, uh, rise to the level of the NHL to be a second professional league? Uh, was it because there was just a, a lack of effort or geography uh, that made sense? Or was it maybe the NHL uh, recognizing and then solidifying its its grip on the game at this early stage? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple things going on, but I think the central thing I would point to is the importance of the arena itself, which is that unlike baseball, which in theory you carve out a field and you start putting out some bleachers, um, you can have a game and start developing from there. There's a technology, uh, essentially, and, a, and an infrastructure cost to hockey that may, basically means cities only really have one arena that's good enough for a hockey game early on. And you see when there's early fights when the NHL in the 19, early 1920s is worried about rival leagues starting up, it's really about we need to control the arena. And once we control the arena, basically no one else can play in that city. Right? Because essentially this is the era of artificial ice up until basically 1910, 1912. Um, hockey was restricted to Quebec, Ottawa, um, uh, Montreal and say Winnipeg, like that, those northern latitude cities that could essentially have outdoor ice for two months a year to play the league. It's the jump to Toronto in 1911, 1912 that is basically um, requires artificial ice. And then you have the jump to the Pacific coast of Vancouver that has to have artificial ice as well. And there it's all about the arena. So if you can control the arena, you can basically control what kind of hockey gets played there. And this is the difference in the WHA in the 1970s is they re- start realizing there's a lot more arenas than there are NHL hockey teams, right? So that the WHA can go to a city and say, look, you've got an arena that holds 15,000 people. You have no major league hockey team. We can give you one, right? In 1920, those didn't exist. So that's the big advantage that hockey has over, say, baseball or football, and that, that, that the, the playing field uh, is part of the equation. That's interesting. And so economically, that's a very interesting lever, right? Because you're literally controlling a, um, I don't know, a scarce asset, right? That uh, that essentially right. prevents, yeah. right? Um, so that's interesting. Are there any other, besides the arena, which seems to be a very uh, uh, solid and, and important uh, lever, any other sort of things that the NHL kind of did to kind of exert its, um, I don't know, uh, monopolistic tendencies? That's my term, right? About... Uh, yeah, that's that's exactly yeah, that's exactly what it is, right? I mean, and I did mention the, the role of Frank Calder, who was the president, the first president of the NHL from 1917 until his death in uh, 1943, as being the person in, in the late 20s that pushed um, less sorry non-major league cities into not aspiring to the major league. I mean, first of all, he he we had to accommodate, or the the, the Canadian League had to accommodate American capital. There's a big fight, essentially, in the early 1920s where Tex Rickard, the legendary Tex Rickard, who controls Madison Square Garden and was really creating, in some sense, the model for the modern sports arena, you know, was looking for uh, something to put into his arena. And he looks at indoor soccer, he looks at all these different sports, and eventually comes to this 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 sport from Montreal where he realizes, uh, you know, I could get X number of nights during the winter 
um, to mix in with my boxing matches. So he goes for that. But as soon as he gets into the sport, that can tr- completely changes the economic landscape because MSG is twice the size. So it means it can make twice the money. This is the era before big broadcasting deals. And they can pay players twice the amount. And Rickard's got this idea that he's going to plant a Madison Square Garden in Boston, which he does. He's also got one for Chicago and Philadelphia, which never come come to be. But the NHL realizes it's got to get into that game um, and, and basically piggyback on him. So Calder really manages that uh, relatively well. I mean, he often talks about how crazy uh, NHL owners are. But the fact that he survived as president in this era is kind of a tribute to his diplomatic skill. But he's also managing this expansion project where for a few years, every six months, five or six different cities would apply for teams, you know, and he's managing whether or not they will get those teams or not. And the NHL does expand to 10 teams and then drops back to seven and then six over that era. Right. So it wasn't, it wasn't a perfect system. The other thing that they do use, I think, which is important, as I mentioned, was, was the Stanley cup, this notion of like the top league having the top trophy and that being a legitimization of your status, uh, right? They, they, baseball is American League and and National League had kind of agreed that they would be equal in status and to play the World Series for the champion. The NHL never really allowed that to happen. They um, after 1926, 20, uh, that was basically the last championship between the NHL Stanley Cup championship between the NHL and the uh, another league. And after that, the NHL basically holds onto that Stanley Cup, right? So even today, I mean, in theory a rival league could pop up and say, we're good enough to play for the Stanley Cup and apply for it. But we know, of course, the NHL has basically taken over that competition and that people probably wouldn't accept that that, that would happen. Well, so uh, how did how did the NHL wrest uh, that uh, that iconic trophy from what I guess was uh, fledgling leagues in the National Hockey Association and the Western Canada Hockey League at that time? Uh, I mean, it seems to me like but getting and in, in, in somewhat uh, legally or illegally or, or I, by, by well, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, it almost feels like that's one of these sort of uh, maybe iconic. Uh, 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 I don't know. I want to say death knells to the other two leagues, but it's uh, it almost uh, it seems like another monopolistic sort of solidification that NHL is the one that's going to wind up surviving in the in the uh, the years following. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So what had happened is that is that uh, uh, once the PCHA had been established again through artificial ice in the teens, uh, they continue, they have basically problems maintaining uh, themselves as a league, and they join up with the Western, become the Western Canadian Hockey League, and they're trying to make it work across Western Canada. Of course, the, the cities there aren't as big, which means they don't aren't making as much money. Which means uh, there's a lot of travel costs as well because it's a vast, uh, you know, train train fares are actually a big part of the, the the operational costs of a team at this point. And when the NHL starts expanding in 23, 24 in the U.S. and like I said, get into Madison Square Garden, which essentially changes the economic landscape of the NHL. The base, the writing's on the wall for the PCHA. They know they're not going to survive. So essentially, their their players, the league dissolves or becomes a minor league, and then the players, the star players, come to the NHL to, to feed these new American teams. So at that point, all the expansion is going to be basically in U.S. cities. And so all Calder has to do is essentially control the ambitions of those new leagues in the United States. And the big challenger in the late 20s is a league called the American Hockey Association, which is you know in Chicago, Minnesota, St. Paul, that area. 
basically the Midwest. And so they have aspirations to, um, to, to rival the NHL. And that is the last example, as I mentioned, of a, of a league actually saying, we want to play the NHL for the, for the Santa Cup. Do we want to, you know, return to that, that binary competition between the NHL and some other league? So Calder basically, uh, basically arranges so that won't happen. Uh, to be fair, the, the trust, the NHL itself, sorry, the Stanley Cup itself is actually run by two trustees. They're independent, but they, of course, do live in Montreal and Ottawa. I mean, they're, they're up, uh, up here in Canada, so they probably were pretty biased towards the NHL. But in, in theory, they were open to other people applying for it. Yeah, that's interesting because it 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 uh, it almost feels like you know that 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 Stanley Cup uh, architecture, shall we say, right? Could it could have easily been sort of the uh, the roadmap by which the professional game uh, could have been or was controlled, right? And if if there was sort of the, I guess, leaning already towards a favoritism, I guess, to this NHL, right? Versus you know using the Stanley Cup maybe as a collective umbrella for uh, two, maybe three at the time and for a period of time competing leagues, right, where, you know, maybe geographically they could be their own sort of professional circuits, keep travel costs low, and and the Stanley Cup would be sort of the ultimate unifier in the, you know, grand championship of the sport. But it's interesting, I guess, either through, uh, you know, above board or, or below board uh, methods, right, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, I guess, the securing of that uh, Stanley Cup, right, iconic as it was. I mean, it's, it's uh, it basically makes the NHL kind of uh, the major, if not only, professional sort of game in town. Um, what I'm interested in, though, is, you know, as the as they expand in the 20s and and, and whatnot, right? I mean, it's clear that there uh, th- that there's a a central control, I guess, that seems to be pretty uh, dominant, and uh, to the point where, um, you know, there really aren't any sort of major league challengers after sort of this era. And I'm curious as to how how would you describe the NHL's uh, uh, defenses and walls, shall we say, in terms of keeping uh, interlopers and challengers sort of at bay uh, during this uh, uh, this time? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And again, I go back to the arenas because what starts happening is um, uh, from about the 19, late 1930s, the NHL, the NHL always had a rule, which was owners could not own other hockey teams. And what they meant by that was that they didn't want multiple ownership of NHL teams. But it often got interpreted as not owning minor league teams as well. But by the late 1930s, that seems to have been relaxed. And what you have is the Chicago and then the Toronto teams start buying American Hockey League teams. So that's the the minor league that still exists and basically started up in this era. And so you start seeing that the NHL owners own parts of teams. And they also, in the post-war, start structuring their player development through those teams. Right. So they've they essentially make those leagues subordinate to them through ownership, through player deals, and also through drafts, right? Where they're allowed to draft on those teams and take their star players, right? So that's the system that, that gets created. Uh, and again, this, this ownership of the arena and being in the top markets is what it's about. Because until they show weakness in the late 60s by not ex- expanding quickly enough, um, basically the only big places big big enough markets with arenas are essentially ones that the NHL or the AHL are in already, right? So they basically lock up again that arena infrastructure. It's only until like people start realizing California 
you know, is this is this big market that we've been avoiding that it really starts changing um, changing the market as it does for baseball, right? Baseball is kind of in a similar situation. So let's talk about sort of the macroeconomic scenario around that time, right? Because obviously the the uh, Great Depression uh, certainly. Uh, you know, uh, touches all facets of life in, in North America and certainly the globe, too. Um, how much does that have a role to play in, um, I don't know, consolidating and or centralizing and or, um, you know, making more, um, I guess, unified this uh, this fledgling NHL, small as it might be in, in I guess, compared to modern terms? Um, maybe you could sort of put that into context. And it almost feels to me as an amateur historian, right, Um the it almost solidified the NHL's grip on the sport professionally. Is that a fair assessment, or am I just being naive? Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. And it, it, what it does is it also clarifies the successful model. So the the lesson of the '30s, which is of course you know places like Detroit, you know consumer spending just gets wiped out, uh, you know, and the team basically gets sold. Uh, this is how Jim Norris gets into the league because he's still rich and everyone else is poor, and he basically takes over the the, the Detroit team and renames it the Red Wings. Um, and he, he actually gets his mitts on various parts of arenas, right? So in the, at a certain point, the Norris, Norris himself or his family have their, their tentacles either into the arena or the team of four different NHL teams. And that lasts into the, the post-war era. So that essentially Norris, in some sense, his money saves the NHL um, because uh, it was, it was in a, some of the teams were in a fairly delicate um, position. But what they start realizing after the war, there's a lot of optimism, but then the big challenge after the start of the Second World War is um, and to come of this, this, this period of the Depression and the war is TV. And TV is a, is a thing that really starts hurting all sports in North America. As people, I think soldiers are coming home having small children and babies and realizing they can turn on the TV and watch, have some entertainment rather than going downtown to the ballpark. So that has a big effect on the American teams, less so on the Canadian teams. And this is actually where you see a divergence where the Canadian teams at this point, that's only the Montreal Canadiens and Toronto, my police, they actually start becoming more powerful than the American teams. And what starts happening is Boston is weak, Chicago is very weak, and the league itself starts pressuring teams to join the ownership of the team and the arena. So that was not always the case that those were the same owners. And that becomes the model going forward is that you need to own the arena and own the team. Right? And that's, uh, so that's a model that essentially they, 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 to some extent persists to this day, right? Um, either you've got, that's the NHL's preference is that you, you own both of those so they can kind of support each other. And also what of course does that allow? It allows you to control who comes into your arena, right? So there won't be a rival team coming into Maple Leaf Gardens because Maple Leaf Gardens is owned by the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? They're not going to allow any kind of uh, rival. They will allow uh, an early Toronto National Basketball Association team, or they'll allow a minor league hockey team, right? They'll allow other sports uh, to create that post-war arena model of, you know, having your NBA team, your NHL team, maybe a minor league team in there as well. But that is another thing that really controls, uh, controls the competition. We're going to take a quick little break here and uh, we got to pay some bills and uh, we want to thank our friends at my bookie for helping us pay some of those bills. It's football season, friends. Uh, and as you know, football is probably the most uh, exciting 
and uh, most wagerable sports there there are is whatever you know what I'm talking about. And uh, there's no better place to uh, experience some of that wagering fun and uh, and good 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 lines and payouts than my bookie. Mybookie.ag. That's the actual website to go to. And uh, we want to encourage you to uh, give it a try because if you use the promo code SEATS uh, with your initial deposit, you're going to get matched dollar for dollar up to a thousand bucks for your initial deposit. That basically means two grand for the one thousand that you put in if you do the maximum to uh, use for uh, your betting purposes. Right. And you want to bet on any game, National Football League, it's college football, uh, all kinds of other sports, both uh, domestic and international uh, you can try uh, your luck uh, at betting with MyBookie, mybookie.ag, and you're going to use that promo code SEATS, and you're going to get dollar-for-dollar matching uh, for your initial deposit all the way up to 1000 bucks. And uh, there's uh, you know, no lack of excitement now that uh, sports gambling is effectively legalized here in the United States. It's going to be a very interesting experiment. And again, I, you can't, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to bet on any of the games and the teams and the leagues that we talk about on this little show. But let's assume that uh, you don't always live in the past and uh, you uh, you do live in the present and uh, you, you've got an inkling, you've got a hunch, you just know that uh, a certain team, hell, even fantasy points and uh, and scenarios are bettable uh, at my bookie. So uh, give that a try. And again, if you're looking at a uh, game, you just think you just got an inside uh, track on. My bookie is the place to go at mybookie.ag and make sure when you uh, sign up, Again, use that promo code SEATS, and they're going to match your initial deposit dollar for dollar up to a thousand bucks. And uh, we uh, encourage you to give them a try and uh, enjoy the extra dollars uh, on us. And uh, good luck as you uh, make your way through the NFL and college football seasons. Uh, we wish you the best. My bookie, that's mybookie.ag, and we thank them for their support of our little show. And of course, we go back to our conversation right now. So knowing the scarcity issue of uh, quality arenas and stuff, so how maybe uh, I'm really curious about sort of how that dynamic plays out in in two cities uh, during this time, uh, Montreal and New York, right? Because those are the only two, based on my research, are the only two cities that uh, for a decent period of time uh, supported uh, or had two uh, viable uh, teams uh, in the NHL, right? The Canadians and the uh, the Maroons for a period Maroons. of time. And then in yeah. New York, you had the Americans and the Rangers. Um, I, I, I'm naive to which arenas that these respective teams were playing in, but maybe a little bit of a sense of that. Were they each in their own arenas or were there, was there a battle for the same arena for each of these franchises? Because it seems like this this would be a, a really good indication about how uh, solid a grip ownership of an arena would be. Um for, for yeah, so that that is actually yeah, that's very much part of the story, and that's the problem that gets resolved essentially in 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 the thirties and 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 the forties. So what what starts out is uh, we'll start with the story in in Montreal. Montreal traditionally had um, many teams at the elite level, up to four in the elite hockey league, and this kind of filters out by the time of the NHL starts up into to a team that's associated with the French Canadian community. Uh, in Montreal, the Canadien, and one that's associated with the English committee, which is the Wanderers, and they play in a building called the Montreal Arena. Well, a few weeks into the NHL start, um, the arena burns down, and the 
the uh, the Wanderers basically give up. They're, they suspend operations. So it's only Montreal Canadiens for a while. But there's money, there's capital in the English community, particularly in Montreal, to build a new arena. That becomes the Forum, which opens in uh, in the early 20s, and they get a new team to go with that. And the team is the Maroons. They were going to call it the Wanderers, but the old owner still held, held the name and wouldn't sell it for uh, less than an obscene amount of money. <laughs> so they renamed the team the Maroons. That becomes the English team. And that so they, they resurrect that model of an English team and a French team. And of course, that has great benefits for a rivalry uh, in the city. Uh, in the in the New York situation, the first team um, is the New York Americans, and they basically are tenants of Tex Rickards Madison Square Garden. And Tex writes a really good deal where he basically gets this new team, the Americans, who are owned by a bootlegger named Bill Dwyer, to basically bankroll the installation of the artificial ice machinery in the arena. Tex was a brilliant negotiator because that cost, I think, $75,000. It was a lot of money in that time. And uh, But as soon as the Americans... So as soon as Tex Rickards sees how successful hockey is, he decides he wants his own team, and that becomes the Rangers. So at that point, the the um, the Rangers become the kind of the dominant tenant, and the the uh, the Americans are kind of the 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 the, the, uh, the unloved child of, of the uh, of the of the garden. Back to Montreal. In Montreal, the Maroons start up in the in the forum and with artificial ice, and the Canadiens think this is a really great idea. We're going to join them, so they actually play both in the Montreal Forum. So the Canadiens are independently owned, and the Forum are owned by um, sorry, the Maroons are owned by the Forum. By the 1930s, people are starting to realize that Montreal can't sustain that much elite level hockey, and so essentially, covertly, it's not really public. The Forum uh, buys the Canadiens. So they own both teams. And then three years later, 1938, they decide we have to sacrifice one of the teams. And they look at the demographics of Montreal and say, well, there's more French Canadians than there are English Canadians. <laughs> so they basically say, we're going to sacrifice the Maroons. The, uh, back to New York. In New York, uh, Bill Dwyer was having trouble, of course, after Prohibition got lifted. He wasn't making as much money. The IRS was going after him. He was constantly in financial trouble. And the, the league actually had to take over the Americans for a while. It seemed like a logical thing to keep the team going because MSG was such a big arena it could make so much money. But basically, in the end, the Rangers ownership, MSG ownership, didn't want the team there. And so in 1942, when they run short of players, 1942-43, they basically say, you know, we're going to suspend the team until after the war. And it basically never gets resurrected. And again, what you come back to is that there seems to be this realization that the model has to be ownership by it. One team owned by one arena is the way to go for it. And that's basically the reason that we don't have as many people want two teams in Toronto, right? Often people say there's examples where you have uh, a very strong market like Toronto, and you could say we could have two teams playing in this one arena easily and still make lots of money. I'm just surprised that before, uh, I don't know, it seems like 1942 is almost sort of a symbolic uh, line of demarcation uh, in, you know, in the history of the, of the league going forward. Um, one of the eras, so to speak, um, arbitrary, I'm sure. But uh, it almost I'm surprised, frankly, that there wouldn't be uh, a greater number by this time of uh, other cities. Right. So, obviously, you know, we're not we're, you know, dancing around the Blackhawks of Chicago and the Detroit Red Wings and, um, you know, uh, the Boston Bruins. Right. So clearly in those cities and pretty stable. Right. For, for a, a bunch of this uh, period of time in the NHL's history. I'm just surprised that there wouldn't be 
a few other eastern or northeastern or central Midwest or even other Canadian cities that couldn't uh, sort of be in a position to step up and uh, and surface or create an arena uh, as well. And it it it's pretty interesting given all the the competitiveness uh, and, and minor league, I guess. Uh, 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 you know, the number of teams and stuff on the minor leagues that there wouldn't be more than six or seven NHL franchises during this period of time. And we're talking a good 20 or so years of of growth and development. And yeah, the yes, the Great Depression. Yes, World War II. I, I you know, understand all those sort of macroeconomic issues. But I'm just surprised that by 42, we're still only looking at seven teams, given the, I don't know, the fervor and the interest of this sport Albeit even in the northeastern region, I mean, I would imagine there are cities and places where there could have been more franchises. Yeah, I think yeah, on the surface it seems like that. So what happens right after the war is Red Dutton, who's taken over from Frank Calder as the president for a brief period of time, starts talking about expanding to Europe. Right? He's he basically you know the the lesson of the war was that we can get to Europe with a short with a plane ride now, right? So maybe we should do that. You also have letters to and people talking about expanding the NHL to California in 1945, 46. And then you see not and uh, sorry, MSG itself talks about moving, building a new arena, Columbus Circle, basically a massive new arena and having two teams, having a second team there. Um, there uh, was also um, an entrepreneur from from Montreal who made a deal with the NHL to take over the Maroons franchise and move, move it to Philadelphia. Um, uh, Dutton himself, his goal was actually to resurrect the Brooklyn Americans in Brooklyn after the war. Uh, none of that happens in the late 40s. And like I said, I think the reason is, is essentially because of this crunch, especially on the American teams, of uh, basically their attendance starts cratering because of TV. Uh, not happening in, in Canada. In Canada, there's no one, no other real city that's able to take that up that size. Ottawa is not interested it's not as big, and the other one team would be Vancouver, and that's pretty far away. So, you know, Montreal and Toronto are kind of the logical major leagues that can compete at, with an American-sized market. So the next team after that to really make a push is the Cleveland Barons, who were the champions of the AHL, had a very solid market, and had were really gunning to be an NHL team. And they do, in the early 50s, apply for NHL franchise and get conditionally accepted. But a few months later, they get refused, and it's a big controversy. People at the time interpret it as Norris's, um, the Norris family basically deciding, we control four of the teams if we, uh, oh, oh, sorry, we control three of the teams at that point. If we, if we had an extra team, then we wouldn't have 50% of the votes at the table. You know, there's conspiracy theories about that. But really what it came down to is they weren't sure about the financial uh, security of the Cleveland owners. And this is, you talked about Boston, Chicago being stable. In fact, in the early 50s, they were not stable. People were worried about whether or not they would survive. So the, the concern at the NHL's Board of Governors was that Cleveland had to have basically a rich person uh, behind the ownership or they were not going to survive very long. And so that's the big concern. So there, it's kind of a conservative point of view. In the 1920s, they really didn't care if people had money at all. <laughs> they would just throw teams out there and see if they stuck. But by the by, the 1950s, they're they're much more conservative. Um, I know this goes beyond the scope of uh, uh, of the book, but I'm I'm really uh, I'm really curious to understand sort of, and maybe you're sowing some of the seeds of it. But what? Why did the NHL stick with 
essentially just six franchises for so long and arguably become uh, interested in the idea or uh, of expansion so late relative to what was going on in other sports in the 50s and the 60s. Was it because of issues like this yeah. thing or, the, or a fear? I, I, it seems that it, it took a, ironically, right, you're talking about a league that, that, that traces itself to some of the earliest days of professional sports in North America. Yet, it was yeah. arguably, by maybe some estimations, years and decades, very late to the idea of expansion. You know, the late 60s was, you know, hard to believe when you look back at well, it not, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, yeah, but that's, you know, they had gone as far as far west as St. Louis, which turns out to be killer in terms of scheduling and, and uh, in the 30s, right? They had just gone to St. Louis, which is about as far west as, the, as baseball was. Um, and what baseball only gets into the what, late 50s only gets to California. So the NHL is basically 10 years behind baseball in terms of expanding. But you're right. There's this growing – the reason – they were conservative. If you look at the league in the mid-60s, even though we talk about this golden age of the original six, basically you had three super strong teams, which are Montreal, Toronto, two Canadian teams, and Detroit. And New York and Chicago and uh, Detroit – I'm sorry, not New York, Chicago, and Boston were essentially not doing necessarily doing very well at the box office, right? So the incentive to expand really isn't there yet. In the 60s, what they do see is they're basically max, everyone's recovering and they're maxing out their attendance, and they do realize we have to do something. And then the question is where? It's also arguably a defensive maneuver against the American Hockey League, this idea that if we don't do it, some other league will. And that's where the, the big California dream comes in, where they basically shoot themselves out over to uh, California and try to tie that into uh, another thing the NHL had really missed out on, which is national broadcasting of games. If you want to see, if you want to see the NHL be behind, it's in broadcasting. By that point, remember that the NFL in the '60s had really, under Roselle, had really made a play for national broadcasting, and basically the modern NFL is built in the '60s. The NHL refused to do things like move its games to the afternoon to accommodate national TV schedules. You know, it didn't. It wasn't really interested in that kind of thing. It, it worried about the consequences of maybe people wouldn't show up to the games. You know, this is a league where you you might not know that Bill Wirtz, who ran the Chicago Blackhawks for many years and owned them, you know, was even up to the '90s was restricting uh, whether or not Boston games could be uh, sorry Chicago games could be broadcast in Chicago. Right? He was so worried about, about attendance, right? The leagues like the NFL knew they had to expand and get big really quickly, so they took risks with broadcasting that the NHL wasn't taking, right? So that's really, the broadcasting is really the area where the NHL falls back. Uh, there is this moment where you could see that, that, Sunday, uh, that Sunday football in the United States could have been hockey. It could have been Sunday hockey in the United States, you know, that they had that moment where they could have made a push for that and been one of those Sunday sports, and they never did. That's interesting. It's also it also seems to be some evidence of um, you know, given six franchises and owners, right? You know the, you know again the tension between sort of centralized thinking about things such as national television versus independent yeah. or franchise centric owners, right? Um, I, yeah, that's right. I, yeah, I mean, it seems like that it was still. You know, a, a very small club, right? With um, and and obviously we see sort of the seeds of how the WHA, uh, you know, has a as a path in the early seventies. Um, 
Well, I think there's one other thing that that uh, we've kind of glossed over, and I and I know you you do tackle this a bit in in your book, um, and I think it's kind of maybe lost on a lot of sort of modern day sports fans is that I think the NHL, you know, also had a unique uh, challenge and or uh, uh, opportunity maybe uh, in that they were a, a binational uh, league, right, or a, a dual. Uh, uh, country kind of uh, approach, right? Versus, say, baseball, which was largely an American kind of pursuit, or American football. You know, if there were any, you know, th- most other sports seem to have some kind of separate sort of thing going on. But this was really the first sort of professional sport that kind of uh, either had to, or by des- you know, or by design, uh, encompass two different countries simultaneously. I, I wonder how that yeah. either helped or hindered. Uh, the growth of the NHL over the years, uh, you know, per our previous discussion. Yeah, it is. It is one of this, this, the central features. It probably wasn't the first league to have done this. There would have been minor league baseball leagues that we don't know as much about uh, that had were crossing borders even late into the uh, late 19th century. But yeah, this binational features is particularly important with with uh, because it shows how unusual the sport is, or how the business organization is. The history of of major league sports in North America, and very much dominated by baseball, is that baseball is given essentially this special place to run itself as a monopoly uh, and control its players in a certain way that many other businesses are are not allowed to do. And the other major leagues kind of free ride off baseball's model. It's like, well, we're major leagues like baseball. Um, but in the war, you get this, uh, the Second World War, you get this very interesting situation where the NHL has to keep crossing the border and it's gone to war with Germany and the United States hasn't. And the United States, of course, has this legislation that says you, you can't help out a country that's going to war with with another country without us being at war as, as well. So then the border becomes much more important in terms of what's moving across it. Canada is very much interested in getting American dollars so it can buy uh, it can buy um, uh, material, buy war goods for its war, and it, it it sees its players as being kind of an opportunity for to get their salaries and bring them back to Canada, get their U.S. dollars and buy things. But what's interesting to me to me about the binational aspect in particular is how the, the league uses this as part of its argument for why they're special. And it becomes difficult for, for uh, in particular, the players to make progress uh, collectively because they're dealing with these different jurisdictions, right? And so when they start, uh, this is 1957, when they start out their own union, again, soon after baseball has done the same thing, they have a real problem essentially getting getting certified as a union because they have to deal with six different jurisdictions in two different countries, right? So it's a hard, they basically fail to create this NHLPA and have it sustained because the, the, the league essentially says, well, you know, you know, we have to go to this, each different state in each different province to, to make these arguments, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating element about, about how baseball basically can deal with one jurisdiction uh, and go to the president and get its green light letter in the Second World War to continue. And Canada has to negotiate with two governments who have different ideas about whether or not sports should continue during the war. Uh, before we wrap up, give me give me some sense of some of the uh, the personalities involved in uh, you mentioned Calder before, and obviously some of these names that are still uh, etched into some of the uh, uh, 
the trophies that are given out to you know some of the better players and owners and uh, league officials uh, every year, right? I think obviously people sort of forget that where these names emanated from, but um, maybe a bit of a taste of some of the personalities involved that sort of kept uh, and maybe solidified uh, the central uh, you know control, shall we say, of the NHL. Uh, over the years that uh, made those contributions to keep this uh, this league uh, going in the, the 30s and 40s and then thriving as original six and then beyond uh, in the years that followed. Yeah, sure. That's one of the things that I really was very much interested in is the interpersonal relationships of the owners and where they came from. And to some extent, what's interesting to me is that, you know, when you look at the census page of Westmount, Quebec, and I think 1901, I looked at it, you notice that Lester Patrick and his brother Frank, who are uh, living on the same street as Art Ross, the legendary player and later part owner of the Boston uh, Boston Bruins, and the Patricks, of course, were stars in the pre-NHL leagues. Lester Patrick was a longtime coach and vice president at Madison Square Garden. His brother, and he had started at the PCHA. So it's fascinating to me that there's kind of this one street in Westbound that produced all these hockey players and and entrepreneurs. But there, are, uh, you know. It's a, when you look at the board of governors meetings, we have some of the minutes of those. It doesn't it doesn't really show you always how they they behave towards each other. You see some of their arguments and how some people uh, were were better at the table than others. But there are like legendary stories of of fist fights at uh, either during or after the meetings where someone would clock someone in the face. <laughs> and I thought that's not your usual board of directors meeting <laughs> in a regular corporation uh, going on there, right? So these. And this is often related to, you know, relationships that these these owners or managers had had on the ice, you know, the decade before. You know, so there's there's grudges. You know, Art Ross and Con Smythe, you know, had a legendary grudge against each other where they would, uh, I don't know if they physically attack each other, but they would they would prank each other and 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 such. Um, what's also interesting is that, that throughout the theme of the NHL, you have this one kind of owner who's kind of an upright businessman leader of the community, but they also at some points have let people in who are not so upright. And I mentioned Bill Dwyer, who is uh, um, uh, a bootlegger um, often in the, in the urge to get a team expanded into a market that maybe wasn't so sure the NHL has, has not been too clear about uh, the kind of business the person has been in when they get the team. Right. And we've seen this on occasion where, Sometimes years uh, after a team has been established, you realize that you know charges have been laid against the owner for some various maybe financial issues or things like that. That they've they've taken people into the club, so to speak, of the NHL, who are looking themselves to legitimize their behavior. Right? That sport owning a sports team is actually a way of 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 of, of washing your reputation in the community. Right? And so that's attractive to a certain kind of businessman. Not only the the morally upright one, but the person who wants to be seen as uh, as morally upright. So there's there's lots of characters that that come out of that. Um, one day there was a great story of Frank Calder showing up to a meeting and and telling someone that he'd uh, sorry it was someone coming to a meeting and saying that he'd walk down the street with Bill Dwyer, and Calder said, you know, you shouldn't walk on the street with that man. One day he came into a meeting and he opened his coat and a bullet fell out. And so there's some quite interesting stories of these guys, especially in the 20s and the 30s. That's, that's really, so I guess the one last sort of question I'll ask is that as as the um, you know as the original six you know uh, kind of became 
you know, somewhat dominant and, and solidified, uh, you know, post-war uh, and became basically, you know, what the NHL was about. And, and you know, a, a lot of interesting stories and players. Uh, you even had the uh, uh, the beginnings of uh, a Hockey Night in Canada, right, which arguably was uh, sort of the beginnings of what a at least a some idea of a national television sort of exposure for the league, right? Not necessarily in the United States, but mm-hmm. um, gives an idea of maybe how television revenues could bring into play. Um, I, I'm really, I, what I want to understand is during that era, right? That post-war era and that I, to, to an extent flourishing, right? Um, when and how does that, I guess what I'm getting at is why not, I, I'm surprised that more challenge didn't come to this league uh, from either outside sources or internally to expand, right? I mean, I, there's sort of that nickname, I guess they call it the sort of, the, by the 60s, it was sort of known as the Norris House League, right? Uh, as the, uh, yeah. the moniker, right? Um, and uh, it just seems that the, the the tighter the grip around this league, the more, um, I don't know, out of step with the times, it would seem, given the opportunities that, say, television and or potentially other markets might have been beckoning and and again, we talked about it before, but I it just I'm wondering how how that centralized thing was either good or bad for the NHL, given that uh, it was still only six teams and relatively regional, uh, you know, by by this period of time. Yeah, a lot of it comes down to the early 60s. You see a big transition in the actual owners themselves. So Consmite gives the essentially gives the team to his son. Um, there's a transition in Boston. Um, Old man Norris, Jim Norris had been dead by this point. Um, so, and he, the ownership had changed in, the, in Detroit and and Chicago. And the early sixties is a moment where David Molson, actually one of the new owners of the um, Montreal Canadiens, basically is one of the people who puts forward the expansion plan. So you see, like basically new blood at the board of governors table who are younger men who do see the opportunities. They are probably a little bit more financially inclined they see that there's a there's money to be made to do this and they do start seeing that they're they're less conservative right they haven't gone through the they don't have the memory of the 30s where where keeping a team and keeping a team financially solid is the most important thing now they're willing to take more risks so i think that's probably what really explains that uh, and the, the league had benefited from the stability but it saw the horizon was going to be um, was going to have other rival leagues, and in fact, their 1967 and 70 expansion don't actually thwart the WHA, right? So even though they do expand, there's this pent up demand that the WHA uh, takes advantage of in the 70s um, to make it happen anyway, right? So they they did pay the price in that sense for um, for delaying um, uh, in a way that say baseball didn't, where you don't see as much failed expansion. Uh, in baseball, certainly as you do in hockey, if you take into account the WHA. But I think that's what, what was really going on as a kind of an institutional, you know, there's only six people at the table. And if they all have memories of, if they all agree, it's hard to break through that. Whereas maybe a bigger league, like now you've got 30, 32, pushing 32. That's a lot of different voices at the table that can um, push things in different directions. And now I'd say the league is much more, know financially uh inclined right they see the and they they're much bolder uh, in terms of expansion well yeah and i think uh, and this will sort of be my sort of last question but i think it's it's really uh, uh you know it, it, we've seen this theme over and over again right where it's sort of this old boys club if you will uh you know lamar hunt yeah. the afl right you know kind of a 
uh, a shot across the bow to the NFL. I mean, a lot of it start, starts with uh, rejection from the club, uh, meaning, uh, you know, yeah. you want to get in and, and you can't figure out a way. I mean, D- Donald Trump with the USFL, right? Uh, you know, New Jersey Generals, you know, yeah. uh, Steve Ross with the New York Cosmos, right? Soccer team, you know, he, he ostensibly started because he couldn't immediately get an NFL franchise, right? So uh, there's that's right. that, yeah. that's a sort of, you know, when you can't, but it's, I guess it's nice to be wanted. Uh, and I get, I got to think that the NHL, ownership at the time sort of recognize, hey, we've got something good here. You know, we're not just going to let any interloper uh, into it. But I guess there's probably no better person to ask this sort of last final question about is how do you juxtapose some of these earliest years and the uh, the original six and the solidification and, you know, all that stuff that we've kind of talked about, how the NHL kind of uh, created its its foundation uh, with the, um, I don't know, in some, t- in some cases seemingly uh, curious uh, state of the NHL today, right? Obviously, the the Golden Knights of Las Vegas, right? I don't a phenomenon. I don't think many people actually saw coming. Um, you've got Seattle, mm. right? That that looks like it's circling around a a half a billion dollar price tag to uh, to get its own expansion franchise. Yet you've got you know a number of teams that are you know in in some of these uh, regions of of the United States for example like in in Arizona or in Florida that are you know you could argue Carolina you know they're a little wobbly shall we say or not necessarily uh well rooted i i guess i'm really interested to hear your thoughts about sort of the state of the economics and the sport of of, of pro hockey the nhl uh, variety uh relative to the roots right i mean obviously a lot of it's big money of course a lot of it's television sure um, but I mean, do you think it's sustainable at 30, 32 teams? Do you think, uh, it is a national sport or, or, you know, fully, uh, embraced as a, as a, you know, as an ongoing and, and, and maybe more interestingly, can it survive an economic downturn, uh, if, and when it occurs, which is, you know, cyclically inevitable, I guess. Yeah, no, those are, those are excellent questions. I mean, what often when I'm talking about the early history of the league to people, I like to point out that. In some sense, the strategy hasn't changed in a hundred years, which is uh, essentially the league expands usually because it has to, not because it wants to. Either an individual owner uh, or or team is powerful and says we must keep that in, or else we're going to have problems with a rival, uh, or we're going to have to. And this is often meant moving south. So people often talk about Gary Bettman's southern strategy. Well, the southern strategy was first talked about essentially in the 1912 or 13, as people talked about going to Boston, because they saw there's an opportunity for us, but also this fear that if they didn't take the opportunity, there would be a rival league, right? And then they would take their players, right? So it is actually a longstanding, consistent strategy to move into into these into new spaces. And I guess what the NHL and leagues like it to be successful, they always have to be comfortable with failure. You have to be comfortable that it's not always going to work out. Um, and they, you know, the NHL seems comfortable with that. They seem comfortable with moving teams around when they have to. What they are wedded to, and this comes back to our earlier part of our conversation, is they are still wedded to this notion of the individual owner in the cartel. And that's the real question that maybe they might have to ask down the road is whether or not it's actually more efficient to have this centrally owned. The reason that people wanted individual teams in, you know, a hundred years ago was because they worried about the integrity of the game on the ice. Do we worry about that anymore? They also worry that, or part of the marketing model is having the Montreal Canadiens, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Chicago Blackhawks. 
is that as important anymore as we have people that you know love the Blackhawks live in Nova Scotia or live in California, right? And so would customers accept that the league be owned in a different way and still come into the arenas? Because I think that's where probably the big efficiencies uh, and, and the big and the ability of the of the league to sustain itself if faced with a downturn would come is if they've got that flexibility to mix and match in terms of ownership. I mean, it's happened, you see, in, in the CFL, Canadian Football League here in Canada, where they've had a weak team and essentially allowed an owner to own two teams, right? They essentially did it. They essentially, the NHL did that in the 30s, where it essentially allowed Norris's money to get into different arenas and different teams just for the sake of survival, right? So that's what they would have to be, they'd have to look to, I think, if they really got pushed um, economically, is they'd have to look to some major rationalization, maybe not as far as the being capital proposal, but something that will allow them to to soften the blow if if there's kind of a, a, a economic you know downturn and more widely in sport. Well, this has been fascinating. I mean, again, I you know I I'm, I subscribe very much to the theory of you know those who. Uh... Those who ignore history, you know, are uh, uh, are saddled or doomed to repeat it. Um, and, and again, there are themes that that you've mentioned that that uh, go back, you know, decades and almost centuries now, uh, a century that uh, that they continue to uh, exhibit themselves. I and mean, we didn't even talk about sort of labor issues and you know uh, owners versus players and 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 all that. And you know, obviously, there's you know the NHL and the famous you know lockouts and all this kind of stuff. But you know, those these issues don't seem to sort of go away. They just sort of seem to morph and nuance, but they, they keep coming back. And they're, it's just, it's very interesting that as we go back into, you know, some of the reasons why teams and leagues don't exist anymore or where they've, they've morphed or changed, you know, the, some of the foundational reasons are rooted in economics and some of those economic issues yeah. are simply cyclical, not necessarily brand new. Although I think every generation thinks that they're, these issues are unique to them, right? Of course. <laughs> All right, so yeah. give it, give a. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, here's your here's your chance to uh, so uh, give us uh, some promotional goodness for the for the book, and uh, I also want to know if uh, you're working on any other uh, things in and around or related to uh, pro sports or or any other things you got going on, uh, research wise. Sure. Yeah. So the book joining the clubs, uh, the business of the National Hockey League to 1945 was essentially the first half of my PhD dissertation on the history of the NHL. So there, in fact, is a, a second a manuscript in the works, which is essentially 1946 to 1967 to up to the first, uh, not the first expansion, but the, the doubling of league in 1967. So I have to make some decisions about whether or not that manuscript is going to include any material afterwards, uh, namely into the WHA era. Uh, I think if not, it will come out sooner rather than later. If uh, it requires a little bit more research, then I'll, it might be delayed a little bit. But that is essentially part two of this will take us up to at least uh, 1967. So uh, probably a couple of years to get that ground out, um, but uh, I'm looking forward to that. Well, that's great. So I, I you know, this, uh, this little show uh, has uh, strangely reached into various nooks and crannies of, of sports uh, fandom. Uh, and, and there are pursuits of hockey thus far have been uh, among the most um, uh, sought after and or um, uh, passion filled, shall we say, in terms of uh, response from the audience. And, uh, I, you know, the, I think uh, if you're looking for uh, some level of support and or uh, encouragement, right, to not only do that second, perhaps, chapter, but maybe even that third, uh, inclusive of the WHA and beyond, uh, you're probably going to find it in our little tribe of, uh, of listeners so far. So I hope uh, all of you uh, out there, uh, not only by, uh, 
buy Andrew's book uh, of, of now, but uh, we'll encourage him to uh, to get uh, his uh, f- uh, future writings out there as well, because uh, you have found uh, some kindred souls here for whatever reason uh, in uh, in this audience, Andrew. So I appreciate it very much, and I uh, look forward to uh, staying in touch, but also um, wanted to hear when you sort of get some detail around when maybe your next uh, the next uh, uh, work comes out or is close to it. Uh, and, um, you know, this yeah. is uh, very much in our wheelhouse, and we, we appreciate your taking time to be part of it. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Tim. Well, all right, there it is. Uh, don't mean to leave you hanging there, hockey fans, but uh, obviously a lot happened to the sport and the NHL in particular uh, after uh, 1945 when uh, – uh, Andrew Ross's book kind of leaves off, but as you heard him say, uh, he's already well into his uh, sort of next chapter, shall we say, of the story, uh, and some very interesting things yet to come, as you uh, hockey historians may know, uh, in the years that followed uh, 1945, all the way up to and including, inclusive of, uh, the great expansion of 1967, and leaving us at the doorstep of the WHA, which came a few years after that. Uh, the book, though, for now that I encourage you to uh, to read, to find, to devour, uh, as I have. It's called Joining the Clubs, the Business of the National Hockey League to 1945 by our uh, guest, J. Andrew Ross. That's his official name and title. Uh, it is published by uh, Syracuse University Press. Uh, it is available wherever uh, good books are found. And of course, you can find a link to that book and get a little uh, give a little love to our show by clicking on that link and uh, buying that book through Amazon. Uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up the episode with uh, with Andrew Ross talking about the uh, early days of the NHL, and you will find not only a show description, but you will find a link to that book uh, from our website. We appreciate you doing that. And um, while you're there, might uh, you also uh, fancy a, a like or a follow on our various social media feeds. Uh, at Twitter, you'll find us at goodseatsstill. Uh, on uh, Instagram, you'll find us at goodseatsstillavailable. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, you can also send us email uh, either from the site or just directly, and that's hello, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Send us an email there as well. We appreciate that. And uh, all the old episodes are there for you to find and download and listen to or stream, whatever you want to do. And last but not least, I want to say uh, a hearty thanks uh, to our friend Jerry Payne and his uh, pals at Podfly Productions for helping us produce uh, this fine little podcast uh, each and every week. You can find out more about him and Podfly Productions at their website, and that's podfly.net. All right, thanks so much for listening. We'll uh, talk to you again sometime next week uh, with another fun-filled episode. Until then, hang in there, and we'll uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye.